This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. So this is episode 8 and part 2 in Mary, Queen of Scots. And it is our final part This is just a two-part series. That is it. Yeah. Definitely not going to be four parts this time. No, we promise. All right. So make sure that you are following us on social media. So on Twitter, we are at Dear Historians. And on Instagram, we are at Outlandish Historians. And you can tune in there, just, you know, episode updates and the like. Um, Also, you know, if you're really loving our podcast, we would love to hear from you. We read all our reviews, so please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes or, you know, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Um, Also, we wanted to give a shout out to the two promos we're going to feature in our episode today. So the first is for Cult of Domesticity and holy crap, I fucking love this podcast. Okay, it's a personal favorite of mine. Um, And you know, Cult of Domesticity is pretty much a mix between history and true crime. Yep, and it's 100% binge worthy. So you should do that. And our second podcast that we are featuring is In a City Like Yours. And it's just really, really interesting because, you know, the host, Michael, he chats with people from all different walks of life about their lives, their experiences, their perspectives, and it's really neat to just hear where everybody is at. So you should listen to that also because it's also really, really good. Yeah, and the promos will be at the end of our episode. Make sure you stick around to the end of the episode because we will be telling you what our next topic will be in the next episode. It'll be the big reveal. You don't want to miss it. So we are going to head on back to 16th century Scotland. And previously in the Mary Queen of Scots series, can we call it a series if it's two parts? I don't know. But on part one, you know, we covered Mary from birth all the way up until... That evil, dastardly plot of assassination against poor, poor David Rizzio. And that is where we are picking up today. All right, so on Saturday, March 9th, 1566, this was at the Palace of Holyrood House, Mary and some of her friends, including David Rizzio, who there were rumors that they were having an affair, were dining and chatting and having fun. Now, Darnley, Lord Ruthven and several other men entered the dining room and accused Rizzio and Mary of adultery and bitched about the fact that he wasn't getting any. And by he, I do mean Darnley, okay? Because Mary couldn't possibly not be sleeping with him because he was an asshole, you know, or something of the sort. No, instead she had to be sleeping with someone else. So Mary was pushed out of the way and into Darnley's arms and he was holding her very firmly. She could not get out. And with that, Rizzio was attacked and stabbed several times. Now, at one point, Mary was actually held at gunpoint after a chair had already been shoved into her pregnant belly. Okay? 
and she really did believe that this was a plot meant to kill her. So Rizzio is now stabbed eight million times. He's dead. And Mary is now locked in her bedroom with their guard posted outside to make sure that she's not going anywhere. And the gates to Hollywood were closed. Since she wasn't going to be getting any sleep that night, and honestly, who the fuck can blame her? She had time to do some plotting of her own. Since her ladies were banned, okay, from being with her, she was going to get them back. She decided that she was going to fake going into labor, which would actually be a miscarriage considering how early on in the pregnancy she was. Darling wasn't going to be taking any chances when it came to his kid, so he had the midwife come up and confirm this, which she did because she'd already been told to do so. She was 100% Team Mary, and it's not entirely clear how Mary had gotten the news to the midwife in order to do this. She did at one point write a note, um, and I, I think the assumption is pretty much that before her ladies were banned, that she had somehow been able to smuggle that note out as kind of like a, if something happens, this is maybe going to be the plan. We really don't know. It's not entirely clear. But the midwife had the news. She did what she was supposed to do. Okay, so the ban was lifted on the ladies because Darnley was like, no, 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 my kid can't get miscarried. And the lords were like, okay, fine. She can have her ladies back, the stress and all of that thing that ladies do. And Mary was slightly happier because she finally had some company. Now, with that out of the way, Mary then turned to Darnley. She had to deal with him. First, she had to deal with his insecurities. The fact that she didn't care about him anymore, she didn't love him, she didn't want to sleep with him, all of that. So her plan was, she agreed to have sex with him, knowing that Darnley would be too drunk to visit her that night. And because Darnley is a creature of habit, she was 100% correct. Next, she had to convince him that the lords would turn on him once Mary signed their pardons, because that was really the goal at this point. The lords wanted Mary to sign their pardons that, like, even though they did this thing in front of her by killing Rizzio, they wanted to get away scot-free. And the issue was that once the lords had their pardons, there was no more use for Darnley, so he'd be treated pretty much horribly and would never get his grubby little hands on the crown matrimonial. At least that's how Mary convinced him, you know, that... Join me, be Team Mary, because guess what? You're, you know, disposable now. So eventually, Darnley was completely swayed to Mary's side, and now the task was finding a way to escape Dunbar, which was um, the closest fortifiable castle. So they had to get the guards away from the doors so they could sneak out, but no worries, Mary actually came up with a plan. The midwife announced that if Mary didn't get some air, she would definitely miscarry this baby. Holy shit. Bad news bears. Darnley told the lords um, this information, who agreed to let Mary go once she had signed their pardons. You know, at this point, because Mary knows she's getting out of there, she agreed to sign whatever the hell they put down in front of her. This actually worked, shockingly. I mean, apparently, I guess they thought, they're such a manly man, they won. Good job, guys. High fives all around. So the guards were dismissed from watching her, and Darnley ended up telling the lords that Mary was feeling under the weather and would sign those papers in the morning. So, you know, yay, good job, guys. So they let this pass. While none were the wiser, the men went to sleep, and Mary, Darnley, and her most trusted servants escaped to Dunbar that night. 
Um, it was a difficult journey for Mary because, you know, she was pregnant. Uh, but they were able to get there where Mary called troops to arms to chase down the main conspirators in the Rizzio plot. Those men eventually fled to England because apparently this is the, uh, you know, gathering ground for exiles of Scotland. And Mary didn't return to Holyrood um, as a result because she felt it was unsafe. Wouldn't you? Some dude was just murdered in her house. So she took up in a house on High Street close to Edinburgh Castle. Now, realizing the situation, she decided to pardon some of the men that were involved in the plot, but only the ones who really weren't, uh, let's say, partaking in the night's events. They could get all their property back so long as they went home and stayed the hell out of anything that had to do with Darnley. The moment Darnley switched sides, he pretty much signed his name at the top of a hit list because not only had he agreed to this plan with them, you know, now he's turned his back on them and is trying to wash his hands of them. So the men who were involved were definitely gunning for him. Who says revenge is old-fashioned? Now, poor Mary, because she has to clean up Darnley's mess. She made him sign a document that said he didn't do anything and was innocent of any conspiracy, even knowing that he was guilty as fuck. Mary, ah, man. And, you know, it wasn't really to save Darnley's hide, but to ensure that her soon-to-be-born baby, you know, Darnley's baby, was considered legitimate and a successor to the throne. Killing Darnley could jeopardize that, so she needed to stick by him, we're using air quotes over here, to make sure people believe the child was his. Because, you know, some people were saying that because she had this affair with Rizzio, haha, maybe that baby isn't Darnley's. Plus, uh, this document was also to protect Mary. If her husband was innocent and didn't believe the rumors that she and Rizzio were knocking boots, then the rumors could just be attributed to some lords who were greedy for power. Now, side note, the other conspirators actually mailed her the paperwork that Darnley signed, allowing the assassination of Rizzio so that, you know, in return for his participation in this stupidity, he would get the crown matrimonial, which Mary had been denying him. So, you know, this was done to get back at Darnley. How dare that asshole turn his back on the lords? Um, Now, at this point, Mary hated Darnley with every fiber of her being. And while death was impossible for him, um, you know, she was basically able to exclude him from everything at this point, like matters of state. Uh, because he knew he couldn't get on Mary's bad bad side since she had the power to bring the men who wanted him dead back to Scotland. That would be really bad for Darnley. So, you know, best behavior, young man. And if you think he was behaving, think again, because not even a little bit. So Mary was trying to get all of the lords to finally just get along because all she wanted was peace from every side. And then there's Darnley, who... Even with the threat of the conspirators coming back to kill him, was just plotting again because apparently he's incapable of doing nothing for more than three seconds. Now, Mary was eight months pregnant and she was incredibly anxious and she was really busy. And it was so anxious and so busy that she couldn't deal with Darnley, who, in all of his stupidity, wrote to France with some half baked idea of invading. England. Now, thankfully, that didn't come to anything, but my God, this man needs a nanny, okay? Mary went into her confinement in Edinburgh Castle and gave birth to James VI two weeks later on June 19th, 1566. And even through all of the pain, she was still capable of making a joke or two. And at one point, she was yelling she wouldn't have gotten pregnant if she'd know how much pain she'd be in. 
James was absolutely perfect. And Mary had done what she had set out to do. She provided a male heir and successor to the throne. Let's talk about childbirth for a second. It was incredibly dangerous, and it was so much so that Mary had a will prepared in advance in case she or the child didn't survive. Luckily, they both did, but she was incredibly weak and she needed time to regain her strength. Now, if you're thinking the baby was able to bring Mary and Darnley back together, think again, because if anything, things got so much worse. They barely spent any time together, and they were pretty much living completely separate lives. Now, after giving birth to James, she went on a quote-unquote holiday where she left James with, you know, a nanny, and she just went away to breathe fresh air or whatnot. Now, while she was on this holiday, she got a really bad feeling, and she returned to James's side. She was scared that Darnley would kidnap James, so she moved him from Edinburgh Castle to Stirling, where it was a lot harder to get to him. And if Mary died, Darnley or someone else could easily take control of the country by being in control of the baby king. In true Darnley fashion, as Mary was once again closing the rift between her lords, he was throwing a fit Henry VIII would be proud of, because obviously, Mary was doing all of this in order to get at Darnley. Like, what? Way to be a conceited asshole. Not everything is about you, dude. But he thinks it is. Instead of dealing with things, he decided to announce that he was going to leave Scotland and live elsewhere. This wouldn't be a problem except, one, that looked awful for Mary, and two, most importantly, everyone, meaning the lords and Mary, would rather Darnley be where they can see him rather than plotting elsewhere with absolutely zero supervision. I love that the Darnley solution is like, well, I'm not getting my fucking way, so you know what? I'm moving. Um, fucking what? Like, dude's king of Scotland in name, but you're married. You can't just move to another country. How does, why did no one be like Darnley? Um, you know, that's an interesting idea, but no. You're kind of sort of married with a kid. Because that was the obvious answer? I just, I don't understand. Like, it's basically, like, petulant, childish behavior. The, you know, the kid who doesn't win at chess, so he throws the chessboard on the floor. This is Darnley. Well, I'm sure it comes from the fact that he was a spoiled brat. Okay, he was the apple of his family's eye. He, I'm sure he got everything he wanted. And then Mary says no. A whole bunch of times, and apparently that just makes us lose our shit. It, it kind of reminds me of when Grandma decided that she was leaving and made a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if Darling would be smart enough to make a sandwich. <laughs> Did Grandma even tell Grandma she was leaving? Uh, you know, I don't honestly remember. So we there was this Mother's Day where our grandfather didn't wish our grandmother a happy Mother's Day and didn't get her flowers, so she got really mad and decided that she was moving to New York, made herself a sandwich, and... Or rather said she was going to make herself a sandwich and leave. Take a train to New York. I, th- that was funny because it's just like, really? But Darnley's a whole other level altogether. Yeah. He's he's a child. There's really no other way to, to explain it. He, I yeah. can't with him. Like, Grandma was just being 
grandma. Yeah, mad and trying to make a point. Darnley is being stupid. Yep. Okay, so now, in this entire thing of he's moving, there has to be a cause for it. So, when he was asked, hey, what's your reason for separation? He had absolutely no legitimate answer. So, instead, a letter was written to France stating that Darnley was insane. Finally. That was the right move. That should have been the offset and then put him in a room where no one can see him or hear from him ever again. Yeah, which pretty much blocked his route of leaving because they were like, hey, he's a nut bar. You don't want him in your country. And they were like, okay, we'll take it. So Darnley was kind of stuck. Now, Mary got really sick after that. Now, she gets really sick when she's under stressful situations And obviously, your husband being a complete and total tool when he's supposed to be ruling a country with you, I would say is super stressful. Would you, Adrian? I think that qualifies, yeah. You know. So, while she was sick, normally her lords wouldn't want to deal with her health issues, but... This time it was really, really bad. Yeah, like, everything had really just kind of accumulated and taken its toll on her. Like, she'd been dealing with Darnley... And the whole Rizzio plot and giving birth and politics in general and throughout all of it, she'd been so strong. However, her health was suffering due to all the stress and the pressure. So the lords got together and were like, life would be so much better for Mary if Darnley was gone. We don't, we don't disagree. Now, with Mary giving birth to a boy, you know, Darnley was at this point unnecessary so it was sort of kind of time for the lords to to really gather around and say how can we get rid of him yeah so while mary was able to get better eventually she almost immediately got sick again and with death practically at her doorstep she realized she needed to make some last minute decisions so she wrote to elizabeth naming her james's protector should she die and he inherit the throne as an infant elizabeth was willing to redraft the terms of the treaty of edinburgh as a result You know, at this point, she was more than happy to recognize Mary as her heir as long as Elizabeth remained childless. If Elizabeth, however, were to have a child of her own, Mary's claim to the English throne would basically be null and void. Both parties would recognize each other as legitimate rulers and treat each other with respect while doing no harm as a result. So the only thing that needed to be overcome was Henry VIII's will, which kept the Stuarts outside the line of succession. You know, was it valid? Who knows? There were some who didn't believe he had actually signed the damn thing um, because, you know, a stamp of his signature was used instead. So the will needed to be examined further in order to discover it was if it was, in fact, a valid document. Now, let's hop back to when the lords were all gung-ho about removing Darnley from the equation. While Mary was super sick, they all came together and decided on the best way to get rid of Darnley. So the first approach was divorce. Uh, you know, they believed that Mary would practically prostrate herself at their feet for any help in the matter. They would be, you know, that she would be so much more in their debt and more than happy to pardon the exiled lords involved in the Rizzio murder as a result. While Mary wasn't necessarily opposed to divorce, as a Catholic, annulment would have been the better option. But she didn't want anything to jeopardize her son's claim to the throne. She didn't want him to be seen as an illegitimate heir. So while the lords continued plotting and Darnley continued throwing fits and pissing people off left and right, as was his job apparently, Mary was focused on the offer from Elizabeth. First, she needed to put her house in order, which meant pardoning over 70 of the exiled lords. But she did it regardless of how much it disgusted her to do it. It was necessary. 
Um, you know, she also needed her government to act as one and focus um, on, you know, the betterment of Scotland instead of remaining at odds due to infighting, you know, as was the order of the day. Okay, so it was after James's baptism that the lords came together. This included Bothwell, Huntley, Argyll, and many others, and they decided that the only way to deal with Darnley was to kill him. Murray, as we all know, her brother, decided to stay the hell out of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was innocent by any means. He knew what the plan was and when it was going to happen, so he made sure that he was able to stay clear of all of it. The phrase that John Guy used was that Murray was essentially peeking through his fingers, and that is 100% true. Darnley wasn't with Mary during this time. He'd opted to leave Stirling Castle, and he went to Glasgow, where the moron got syphilis. Right? Afraid that Darnley was plotting behind her back, again, she went to convince him to come back to Edinburgh with her. Mary'd heard that he was still trying to steal James away and lock her away for the rest of her life. And obviously, Mary is not going to be on board for that plan. At all. That's what good husbands do, lock away their wives. I mean, a quiet wife is a good wife, I guess. I think for Darnley, it was an absent wife is a good wife. Same thing. But more importantly, Mary was able to convince Darnley to come back to Edinburgh with her. But while Mary returned to Holyrood, Darnley decided to stay out at Old Provost's lodging a few miles away while he finished his medical treatments and recovered completely. He was a vain son of a bitch who essentially didn't want anyone to see him in his sickly state. Yeah, especially since with syphilis, like, his face became all pockmarked and everything. And, you know, Lord forbid, someone sees his pockmarked face. That would just be the end of Darnley. It really would. He was very proud of his appearance, and if anyone saw him like that, his life would be over. All right, drama queen. Darnley also claimed that the lodgings would be better for his recovery since the air was better there than at Holyrood. And he wasn't wrong, because the position Holyrood was in, um, you know, the air wasn't as clean as it was where Darnley, where the old provost lodging was, because I think it was, what, upwind or something? I can't remember the exact specifics, but it sat in a better, essentially cleaner part of the city, because mm. it was right on the outskirts. Yeah, so it wasn't as packed in as everything else was also. Yeah, and since Hollywood's at the bottom of the Royal Mile, of the hill, you know, fun Uh, smells will travel. Yeah, so we never really explained this to you, did we? So Edinburgh used to be known as Old Reeky. And this is one of my favorite stories ever. This is one of Renee's favorite topics. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's interesting, okay? So the reason for this was it was very reeky yeah they they said that you essentially you could smell edinburgh from miles away because if you've ever been you'll know that there is the royal mile at the very top is edinburgh castle and at the very bottom is the palace of hollywood house now there are no bathrooms okay so you at this time period right now there are bathrooms in edinburgh (laughs) i can attest to it there are in fact bathrooms okay but back then there weren't bathrooms in the sense where you you know flush a toilet there's sewage no none of that right that time you went in a chamber pot yep and then what did you do with that you threw it out a window while yelling guardy loo yeah 
Yeah. So the Scots actually used that far after everybody else had kind of figured out a different way to manage this. So say, you know, the window opens and someone's like, Guardy Lou, you're supposed to say, hold your hand to tell them, hey, there's someone down here. Please don't throw your shit on me. <laughs> um, but apparently they were using it so much longer than other people that apparently when, um, like the English, for instance, would visit the city, they no longer were using this shit. So when someone would yell, Guardy Lou, the English would actually look up. <laughs> It's so disgusting. <laughs> Isn't it, though? But my tour guide, he got such a kick out of telling that story. He was like, uh, yeah. He was like, oh, yeah. He was like, it's great. <laughs> Sorry. So, fun fact. That's why it's better air elsewhere, because shit travels downwards. I don't know that the shit was traveling towards the Palace of Hollywood no. House. But it was still a very stinky city. Yeah, I was traveling in the other direction towards Norloch. Yeah. Which Renee likes to call Pooploch. I do. Well, that's all it was at one point. Basically. So if you've ever been to Princess Street and you're wondering why the grass is so green, mm -hmm. that's why. It had excellent fertilizer for many, many years. For many, many different people. And many, yeah. Well, in many ways, actually. I don't know. We're not getting into I don't know what that means. We're just going to move on. <laughs> okay. So, better air where Darnley is. That's where we left off. Okay. So, I'm going to move away from that. He's recovering. Mary's at Hollywood. Now, on Sunday, February 9th, Darnley was super duper excited because he'd appeared to have completely gotten better and was planning to return to Hollywood the next day. That night, while Mary and Darnley were talking, there was a group of men lining the bottom of the lodging with gunpowder, and he told Mary that he'd heard rumors of an assassination attempt on his life. To be fair, Mary did investigate the rumors, but she wasn't able to find anything, so she just kind of brushed it off because everything seemed to be a-okay and he was just overreacting. Yeah, so on February 9th, Mary had spent the earlier part of the day, actually, attending a wedding. Um, she did leave early, but she promised she'd be back later for the dancing, because Mary was always fond of her servants and never broke promises to them. Plus, she was also very fond of dancing. Now, Mary and some of the other lords joined Darnley for a bit, actually, to celebrate the end of his illness. So, you know, they went to the old provost lodging, they were playing cards and having a few drinks with him. But when it got late, Mary actually mentioned the wedding reception uh, she was meant to return to to ward off Darnley's sexual appetite. So he was like, hey, lady, you're here. I'm here. It's time. I'm better. And she was like, oh, Darnley, that would be thrilling. But... <laughs> Oh, no. I already made a promise that I have to keep. I've got to get back to this wedding. You know me. I can't break my promises. Tomorrow, sweet man, tomorrow. So, when he'd be back at Hollywood. That makes sense, right? Back in their home, in their, you know, chambers. They'd go at it. But, we did read another book where it actually stated that she had planned to sleep there that night in her own room, which was what? It was below Darnley's bedroom, right? Um, I don't remember if it was below, but I do know that they put the gunpowder in her room. Right. So, you know, wherever her room was located, I'm pretty I, sure it was the floor beneath him, like directly beneath his bedroom. Because I know it was on the same side of the lodging. Yeah. So 
you know, she made this plan that she was actually going to sleep there, but her lords, you know, those plotters, reminded her that she said she'd return to the wedding. Like, oh no, your majesty, remember that promise that you made? You've got to keep that promise because you can't find the fucking gunpowder in your bedroom. So she went back to Hollywood to to the celebrations, but that didn't last long either. So Mary was tucked into bed as snug as a bug in a rug a little after midnight, and this was after putting the bride and groom to bed, of course. So Darnley, ever predictable Darnley, opened up a bottle of whatever the hell he liked to drink and started getting ready for the next day, making sure that his horses were ready to set out first thing. Then he went to bed around midnight, um, and his servant slept in the same room with him on a pallet on the floor. So at around two in the morning, a loud explosion woke people up all over Edinburgh. It was so loud, people thought it sounded like multiple cannons being fired at the same time. Mary was woken up by it as well and immediately sent some men, including Bothwell and the captain of the guard, to check to see what had happened. When they arrived, there was nothing left of the old provost's lodging, just some rocks and dust that used to make up the structure. Darnley and his servant were actually found on the other side of the garden under a tree outside the perimeter wall, both of them dead. There were no marks on them. There was no soot on them. There was nothing to indicate how they died. You know, near them, they also found a rope, a chair, a cloak, and a dagger. They weren't stabbed, hanged, or anything having to do with those items. But, you know, could they have been smothered by the fur cloak? Who knows? Okay, so after all of this happened, you know, Mary wasn't necessarily upset about his death. I mean, at this point, their marriage was so broken and she was so much in heat with him that, you know, would you be upset about the guy that you couldn't stand being found dead? But it disrupted the plans that she was making with Queen Elizabeth. Plus, there was another issue. Mary believed she was the target of the plot. Had she not left, she would have ended up dead as well. So she ordered a thorough investigation, but there wasn't really much of a chance um, of a proper investigation actually taking place since it fell under the domain of the Privy Council and at least half of those guys were involved in the plot. So there are two theories for what might have happened that would explain why Darnley was found the way that he was. The first one assumes that Darnley heard people breaking in, tried to escape, but ended up strangled and his body dumped in the garden on the inside of the wall. Now there are three issues with this. His body was actually found outside of the wall. There was no reason to kill Darnley if the house was going to blow up. And the third issue, which people don't talk about, is that there were no signs of violence on his body. So could he have been strangled without any ligature ma- any ligature marks? Mm, I'm thinking no. Plus, With the house about to blow, it's very unlikely that the conspirators would have risked going into the house to murder him. Unless there just so happened to be another group of people plotting to end his life. So, far from unlikely, it's not even funny. The second more plausible explanation, upon hearing noise, what noise, again, why would someone break into the house that was about to blow up? He grabbed his knife, put on his cloak, and went out the window by way of the chair and rope with the help of his servant, and was then killed. Using a chair and a rope to go out the window was basically the fire escape at the time. It might also be that he didn't hear any noise, but got the heebie-jeebies and flew the coop. Because of the way his body was found, some believe that he'd been killed and then moved to where he was found. Um, why do this if the explosion is the perfect way to get rid of the evidence? 
The only thing we can think of is that he did leave the lodging through the window, and to keep the plan on track, someone had to improvise. So who done it? Well, Bothwell was carrying the brunt of the accusations. Honestly, no one really liked him by this point. He'd been too much of a peacock. Um, you know, and the fact that he had quickly become one of Mary's go-to guys really pissed a lot of people off, as we see a pattern happening here in the Scottish politics um, at this time. Anyone who really starts gaining prominence immediately ends up on the we-hate-you list. But at least in this, Bothwell was not alone, and there were others involved. Yet again... Every good plot needs an even better fall guy. But things continued to get worse. So when Mary sent someone to France, she quickly went from an innocent bystander to a person of interest. After all, how could the Queen of Scots, someone with so much power, not know about the assassination attempt? As a result, people started believing that she actually had a hand in it. Even her fucking family, okay, even her Guise family started plotting behind her back with Moray. But wait, there's more. All those talks and plans with Elizabeth were null and void. You know, Elizabeth told Mary that if Bothwell was accused by the Lennoxes, she should have him arrested and that she would no longer support the new treaty that was discussed. Elizabeth, that is. She wanted Mary to sign the old one, the one, you know, that wasn't in Mary's favor. So if we remember, Darnley was Elizabeth's kinsman as well. Oh, Mary. Sweet Mary. She was so angry with the letter from Elizabeth that she refused to write back. Now, in regards to the lords who plotted to get rid of Darnley, they were too stupid to think further ahead than the big boom and how their actions might be perceived. You know, now Mary's a widow twice over, um, and as a result, she followed the French custom of 40 days of mourning. So the day after Darnley's assassination, she, um, she went to a wedding because it was for one of her bedchamber ladies, her favorite one, actually. And as mentioned before, she doesn't break her promises. But holy shit, did this look bad. People started thinking about this, you know, the day after her husband is dead. And she's out and about like nothing ever happened. Further proof that the queen played a part in Darnley's death. Meanwhile, she was just being kind to one of her servants. So, Mary. Oh, 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 Mary. Instead of trying to find out who killed Darnley like she should have been doing, instead, she looked to Bothwell as the savior of Scotland. She believed that he'd be able to wrangle the lords together as he was one of the most powerful men in the country. And it's it's not inaccurate thinking. It was just done poorly. Yeah, not the best execution. And not necessarily the best person either person to re- yeah rely on when and that's the thing about mary like she it's not even like she's blind and she's like oh no i don't see things i'm not aware you hate who no she she knows what's going on in her own court is she chooses not to see it because it doesn't work for her essentially and her narrative she needs it to work for her narrative right and if it goes against her narrative then she's putting on blinders and that's what i think pisses me off the most about her is that she's not a stupid woman she was not a, quite not even a little yeah like she was quite clever and even though she was raised without that whole political intrigue background she could still play the game if she chose but for some reason she just kind of relied on other people to the, play the game for her and the wrong people Instead of trusting the ones that were actually trustworthy, now we're not saying that there were a bunch of those around her, 
she instead relied on one person at a time instead of relying on several. Right. And like, you know, your privy council's at odds. So play them all against one another for your benefit, not I like this guy over here. So you're all going to listen to this guy. Cool. Now all these people who can't get along are getting along in the sense because now they hate that guy. So all of their energy is focused on that guy and they're now colluding as one. In that regard, like Mary really should have taken a page out of Elizabeth's handbook because Elizabeth, there she is, a queen ruling by herself with no man by her side, playing the game really, really well and managing her country again well. And she's not doing what Mary is doing. She's confident. She's she knows she's strong. She knows she's intelligent. Right. She trusts in herself. Okay. To be fair, Elizabeth grew up in Tudor England, in a court and country that was consistently at odds in regards to religion, in regards to political views, in regards to her tyrant father. And okay, Mary didn't have that, so she grew up, you know, warm and safe, and you know, embraced. But. So, yeah, Elizabeth has that going for her that, you know, she ha- she comes from this background where from a young age she had to play the game. Otherwise, she could have ended up with her own head on the chopping block. And she did end up in the tower at one point because Mary Tudor sent her there. But still. Yep. <sighs> yep. Mary. That, Mary Stewart. Yeah. And the more you, like, learn about her, the more frustrated you become just because she is such an incredibly intelligent woman. And she just doesn't live up to her own potential yeah and i think that's what's so frustrating she could have done so much more been so much more and instead things just keep falling apart so mary believed that murray was the mastermind behind the plot to kill darnley and so she shunned him by trusting bothwell above all others and while not completely under his control at this point she still placed men he recommended in charge of castles and forts, and she was, once again, listening to the wrong advice. It's a pattern. It's awful, okay? And eventually, Murray left for France to live in exile because he was like, you know what? Fuck it. And hasta la vista. Even when Lennox, who is Darnley's father, came out and put Bothwell at the top of the list of suspects that of people who murdered Darnley, you know, after Mary asked him to make this list, by the way, she pretty much scoffed and ignored it, and she placed her faith once again in Bothwell since she never liked Lennox. Now, let's talk about why that's such a wrong move. She says, hey, your son was murdered, okay? Make me a list. And he says, okay. I'll make you a list. And he gives her this list. And she doesn't like the list. So she says, meh. Fuck your list. Okay? Understandably, Lennox was pissed off. Now, during this, Bothwell seized his chance and started courting Mary. Now, he was married at the time still, but he figured that could easily be fixed if Mary was interested in him. It was kind of like, uh, hey, hey, pretty lady, need a new king? If so, I'll take the burden and sacrifice it all for the greater good. You know, I'm such a giving 
human being. He was very altruistic. This was just all in the name of the good of Scotland, obviously. That's all he cared about. He wanted what was right for Scotland. Uh Uh-huh. But okay. Before anything could be done about that, so Bothwell had his trial date. On April 12th, 1567, in Edinburgh, where he had a lot of supporters in the city. And this was for Darnley's murder. Yes, so Lennox was supposed to be there. Okay? But he never appeared, and therefore there was no evidence that was brought forth linking Bothwell to the murder or the explosion. Therefore, Bothwell was acquitted. Afterwards, Bothwell came up with the Ainsley Tavern Bond, where he gathered some of the conspirators in the tavern and had them sign that he was innocent of all the charges, when he really wasn't, and we all know it, and that they would defend him should anyone say otherwise, and that they would also support him when it came to courting Mary and becoming lucky husband number three. Some of the men who were called upon to come to this tavern never showed up, That should have been his first hint, stop while you're ahead. But he kept going. So on April 21st, 1567, Mary made her way to Stirling Castle, which was held by the Earl of Mar, to see her son. Initially, Mar actually refused her entry because he knew that all it would take to shift the power of Scotland, you know, from Mary to someone else was essentially for someone to kidnap baby James. Specifically, there would be a war if Bothwell was allowed anywhere near the child. And it should be noted that the Earl of Mar was very much... Team Mary. That, and he also loved Scotland. Like, he was a powerful man, but he would always put the country before his own needs, which is why he was like, Mary, I'm gonna keep you outside here for a second. Like, otherwise he wouldn't have had the gall to tell the queen of his country to stand outside. Yeah. He did eventually let her in. Um, You know, obviously Mary was pissed off that he would refuse her entry into her own damn castle, where her son is, and she's the fucking queen. But eventually she gets in, um, and he only allowed two of her ladies to keep her company while she was there. When she said goodbye to baby James on April 23rd, it was the last time she ever saw her son. So on the way back to Edinburgh, just a few miles away, Bothwell stole okay, air quotes, stole, Mary away, though if we're honest, she was really rather docile during the whole ordeal and was taken to Dunbar, where Bothwell likely had his way with her. No one really knows if it was consensual or if it was rape. You know, there's so many different theories regarding it, but there's no concrete evidence to say what it was one way or the other. Um, You know, there were some accounts that say she ordered her servants to get to Edinburgh and bring men to rescue her. But what's pretty much believed is that Mary was taken to Dunbar and then succumbed to Bothwell's charm. She spent 12 days with him. um, And honestly, if she really wanted to get out, she'd likely have found a way to do so or ordered them to let her go. Especially since Bothwell wasn't there the entire time she stayed at Dunbar. So she could have just left and gone back to Edinburgh. By May 3rd, Bothwell was a divorced man, and by May 7th, he had an annulment from the Catholic Church after Mary was actually the one to ask for it on his behalf. And so, more plotting ensues. Mar, Argyle, Athol, and a few other lords got together and created the Confederate Lords. Um, And their goal was to save Mary from her forced confinement and kill Bothwell in the process. 
He was a threat because of how quickly he was gaining power and control over the government and country. Now, apparently, the general rule seemed to be if you hate someone enough, it's okay to kill him. Because why not? Now, Mary and Bothwell were back in Edinburgh on May 6th. Um, and to say that people were less than pleased is very much an understatement. So it didn't look like people wanted Mary to marry Bothwell at all. Um, you know, they had just lost their king and now their queen is ready to jump into marriage with someone else. It's like, you know, yesterday I had a king and then I lost him to find tomorrow I'll have a new one. Not socks, Mary. Can't change him that quickly. Do you think no one told her? That she can't just change husbands that quickly? Yeah. I'm sure people did. I don't think she listened. Well, in one ear and out the other. The, yeah, that pretty much seems to be Mary's, um... M.O.? Yeah. So after the bans were read, she elevated Bothwell's status in the nobility just so she could marry him, just like she did with Darnley. They signed the marriage contract on May 16th. Now do you see why, you know, people are concerned and are hating this? Things are moving so fucking fast. Um, and they actually used the Ainsley Tavern bond as justification for the marriage. Kind of a, see? You know, they wanted me to marry him. This is totally the plan. Guys, you agree. Now, they got married on May 17th with few witnesses uh, because people didn't want to go. Um, you know, this included their servants and the four Maries. And this was only three months after Darnley's murder. She didn't even wait a whole year. Mary, for shame. And what is the rush to be wedded and bedded to someone else? Honestly, you're the Queen of Scots. It would have been so much better if she would have stayed in mourning and chosen a husband, you know, a year after the fact. Then that's acceptable. Then people understand. Honestly, at that point, she really didn't need to. Right. She had her son. She had her heir. There was absolutely no reason to run into another marriage. Exactly. Because also, James wasn't a sickly child. He was a very robust child from the moment he was born. And, I mean, I can understand wanting to get married like a year later to, you know, have that spare in case, you know, tragedy befell James. But, in all honesty, she really didn't need to. Right, instead she made a whole bigger fucking mess by doing this. And that just led to her own goddamn demise. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. A little bit. All right, so Mary is married to Bothwell, who is an ass. All right? Can she pick him or can she pick him? My gosh, she should have just stuck with, like, finding guys like Francis. Right? Although he also had a temper, but you know what? I don't know that he used it on Mary, though. No, he liked Mary. But other people, not so much. Yeah, whereas she, you know, both Darnley and Bothwell are not afraid to uh, show their true face to their wife. Oh, oh yeah, no, 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 because with Bothwell, whatever nonsense or claims to love he spouted before the wedding was complete and utter bullshit. So, while things were pretty much fine before the wedding, it didn't stay that way afterwards. Bothwell had a temper, and this is what we're saying. He was mean and violent, and there were accounts that state he was physically taking his anger out on Mary. He was an abusive son of a bitch. Right, and if I were in her position, well, number one, I'd never put myself in that position, but let's say I was Mary, I think at that point I'd have been like, you know what, fuck this shit, off with his head. Dude, he laid his fucking hands on the queen, like... Right? Get bent. Right? And... So what's really interesting to note is that Mary is a drama queen. She really is. But after her marriage to Bothwell, she was overheard by 
several people saying, I wish I were dead. And now it's interesting because no matter what was happening, she never ever said anything that was like remotely suicidal. It's just, oh my God, I'm in pain. Right. Oh, Oh, I suffer. Oh, I suffer. Right. And now here she is saying repeatedly, my God, I wish I was dead. Yeah. And people were like, um, I think she's kind of really sort of being serious. Um, (laughs) after just those three lines that we just told you about. Yeah. But historians believe the reason for you know, her, I wish I were dead, this, this very, like, dramatic to the extreme response was possibly because Bothwell told her the truth or as much of it as he was willing to own up to about the plot to kill Darnley. That it might explain, you know, one of the reasons, one of the many, I'm sure, reasons that things just turned really sour between them very, very quickly. In private, things were not so good, but in the public eye, Bothwell was incredibly careful about how he treated Mary. He was always kind and gracious, the picture-perfect husband. The picture-perfect abuser. Right? And honestly, have, like, think of, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, so... The movie or the series? The series. Hmm. So you remember Ted... Oh, um, in season two, the the robot guy. Yeah, so if you guys haven't seen it, so in season two, there's this episode where Ted is dating Buffy's mom, and to Buffy's mom, he's 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 perfect. He, he, right, he's all politeness and smiles and, you know, the... He loves to cook and he loves to bake and... He loves Buffy and her friends. Right? In private, when, you know, Joyce can't see anything, he's cruel and violent to Buffy. So just picture that. Yeah, this was Bothwell. And, you know, Mary allowed all of this to happen, both in public and private. Yeah, and that's what makes it even worse. She suffered it and let herself suffer this way. Telling you, off with her head. Her head or his head? I mean his head. Although. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) getting ahead of ourselves. So... While all of this is happening, her lords were gathering an army. They were essentially opting to be, hey, we're going to be rebels now. Okay, thanks. And they were ready to wage war in her defense, and it was mostly against Bothwell. And there she was. She was protecting Bothwell. And she was issuing orders to her lords to knock it off. There they are, ready to be like, we are here to defend you. And she's like, no, 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 I don't need your defense. He's fine. He's good. He's my husband. I would have been like, oh, no, alas, I am locked in a tower. Rescue me. Right? Maybe ordered someone to push him down the stairs. You know, those curvy staircases made of stone. Notoriously unreliable. Right? Uneven. It's anything could happen. The dark of the night when there are no torches lit. So... (laughs) Right now she's ordering it to knock it off, and it really shows that her thought process hasn't changed since Darnley. She married the man, and now she was stuck with a pompous, abusive jackass who behaved as though the crown were on his head and not Mary's. And again, we've said this already, for such an intelligent woman, she made so many awful mistakes. She could be strong when she needed to be, but when she needed to stand 
against her own husbands. Who were raised to their station by Mary. They weren't born into this. Unlike Mary, you know, as kings and queens at that time believed, they didn't have the divine right to rule. They weren't chosen by God. They were chosen by Mary, who was chosen by God. As a result, she should have been like, I unchoose you, sit the fuck down, and shut the fuck up. Yeah, and it's like, it's e- it's made even more unbelievable considering the fact that she she did have a strong personality, and you can see it when she's dealing with Elizabeth. Because there are times when she just goes toe-to-toe with her and is like, no, I'm not backing down. And I'm over here thinking, the fuck you ain't saying that to your husbands? Right. What's wrong with you? You can say that to another anointed queen, but you can't stand up for yourself mm-hmm. against someone who is quite literally below you in station. Yep, and only got to his position because you let it happen because you said so. All right. On June 6th, 1567, after hearing that the Confederate lords were going to attack, Mary and Bothwell left Edinburgh for Borthwick Castle which was close enough to the city in case they needed to return, but it was well fortified against anyone who would try and attack. This is when things start getting super crazy. Er, let's clear that up. Yeah, so the Confederate lords did try and raid the castle on June 10th, but Bothwell was able to get away, without Mary, by the way. Um, So the Confederate lords were pissed off that Bothwell had slipped through their fingers, so they stayed the night outside the castle and then headed back to Edinburgh in the morning. Except when they got there, the gates were locked to keep them out. Fortunately for the Confederate lords, they were able to get over the wall and take the city anyway. Now, the lords still on Mary's side, such as Huntley, were forced to retreat into the castle as they weren't able to overpower the Confederate lords. This might not have been an issue for too long, except James Balfour, the newly anointed captain on Bothwell's recommendation, changed sides. Um, He was actually one of the conspirators in the Darnley plot, and he switched sides on the condition that he would be pardoned of his involvement as he was beyond piss off when Bothwell was acquitted. So Balfour's change in allegiance ensured that Huntley and Mary's other allies were trapped inside the castle and, as a result, were unable to come to her aid until it was too late. On June 11th, Mary, the ever-resourceful woman that she was, was able to escape from Borthwick with no one the wiser. And how did this happen? Uh, because she dressed up as a dude. Apparently, she uh, she really liked doing that. I mean, considering how tall she was, I'm sure it was rather easy for her to pass as a man, depending on how she dressed and how closely people were looking at her. Um, in this instance, though, they weren't looking too closely, and she was able to get to Dunbar Castle. Bothwell met up with her a little ways before that, finishing the journey with her. While the Confederate lords were gathering an army to Edinburgh and Argyle was bringing his men from the Highlands, uh, Bothwell went up to his lands to gather his own men. Granted, not all of them showed up, but on June 14th, when he once again met up with Mary, who had also been gathering an army, he brought with him 2,000 men to add to the 600 men she was already riding in front of. On June 15th, both sides met at Carberry Hill. After hours of getting nowhere, as neither side was willing to make the first move, Ducroc, the French ambassador, offered to speak to both sides to see if he could mediate a peace. Ducroc didn't care if the lords had an issue with Bothwell, but to him, you know, you don't go against the queen. Mary was an anointed queen, and, you know, standing against her was an entire thing altogether. The lords offered two options to Mary as a result. She could leave Bothwell or Bothwell would fight in single combat. Um, You know, Mary decided to counter that with her own conditions. Surrender and she'd show them mercy. 
So, no truce. Um, You know, once again, they were at an impasse. However, while Mary's position atop Carberry Hill was strategically advantageous, you know, she could see everything, it also meant that during the hottest part of the day, her men were exposed to the sun and the heat with no place to take shelter and cool off. Now, as a result, slowly men started disappearing as their morale ran low. Kirkaldi of Grange came to Mary under a white flag and spoke with her. Uh, He assured her that... If she left Bothwell, the lords would stop the fighting and resume serving their queen. So at this, Bothwell stepped forward. You know, this was the second time. The first time they offered single combat, he said yes. The second time, he's like, oh yeah, I am strong and wonderful with a sword. Of course, I will win. So he accepted. Um, And Kirkaldi was recommended as the fighter, but Bothwell rejected him, saying that he wasn't noble enough, okay, to fight him. Yeah, he only wanted to fight someone that was essentially equal to him in rank that was, like, high enough in the nobility. And I'm like, what? Yeah, fucking peacock. Anyway, so, um, you know, it was then decided that it would be a man by the name of Lindsay. Uh, But before it could happen, Mary actually stopped the fight at the last second. She knew that if Bothwell was killed, she would well and truly be alone with no one to protect her. She would likely then be imprisoned, and that would be the end of Mary, Queen of Scots. She agreed to go back to Edinburgh if they let Bothwell leave, so long as she was treated with kindness as befitting her rank, okay? She figured that so long as Bothwell was still alive somewhere, there was always the chance that he'd come back. Bothwell left with a small group of men, and as soon as he was gone, people turned on Mary, and they started calling her a whore, and a murderess, and they were calling for her to be burned as a witch. And meanwhile, her lord said absolutely nothing. They literally turned away, like, what? We don't hear this. We can't see it. It's not happening. As if it's perfectly okay for her people to be calling their queen all these things and literally calling for her head. Pissed off, rightfully so, She made her intentions perfectly clear in a moment when she should have just kept her mouth shut. All the way back to Edinburgh, she she kept telling them that she was going to sentence them to death, that they were going to die. That was it. So when they reached Edinburgh, even more people started shouting at her, calling her even more names. However, it should be noted that most of the Scottish people did support her. It's just mostly Edinburgh, where it was kind of a little bit of shaky. In secret, the lords asked Ducroc what would happen if the lords took control in the name of Prince James while Mary was sent elsewhere to live in exile. Essentially, so long as the English kept their noses out of it, the French wouldn't care. The lords made a huge show of telling the people that Mary would be returned to Holyrood House where she'd be able to be free and and live and do as she liked. However, it was all pretense, as they had absolutely zero intention of keeping her there. During the night, in nothing but her nightgown, she was moved to Loch Levin, where she would be imprisoned under the watchful eye of Laird William Douglas, the half-brother of Moray, by his mother. While Mary was safely locked away at Loch Levin, the lords took the opportunity to start building a case against her. They started spreading word that she was guilty of killing Darnley. Apparently, she and Bothwell had been sleeping together for many months before Darnley was killed. They planned the entire thing to finally be rid of the man and then planned the entire kidnapping and everything after that as well, because what? I mean, man, did Mary get around? 
Rizzio, Bothwell, Darnley, how do you keep track? My god, and she's just a plotting machine, isn't she? Apparently she has nothing better to do. You know, like run a country, but... Okay, plots are always also fun. I guess when, you know, you're constantly plotting, then I guess the assumption is that everyone else is too. You know, no, some people have better things to do, guys. So, we're gonna be honest. Mary really didn't have anyone to blame but herself when it came to her nobles rebelling against her. She wanted to marry Bothwell, and so she used every excuse she could to make sure the marriage happened, such as the Ainsley Tavern bond. She didn't know that he was involved in the Darnley assassination, even when Lennox was like, he did it. And of course, there was the excuse that her nobles would have flipped a shit had she married a foreigner. Plus, Bothwell would protect her. So that was her reasoning. When Elizabeth heard about Mary's imprisonment, she was livid. Like, how dare they imprison a queen? She stood behind Mary 100% and wrote a strongly worded letter to the lords ordering them to release Mary as Elizabeth was growing more and more angry and threatened to start a war in order to free her. About a month into her captivity, Mary unfortunately lost the twins that she had been carrying. Um, yeah, so she was pregnant by Bothwell at this point. Um, then on July 24th, 1567, the lords made a trip to Loch Leven to have Mary sign a few documents. The first one said that she couldn't handle the throne and its responsibilities anymore and therefore abdicated to Prince James. The second one assigned Murray as regent and the third appointed the lords as the ones in charge until Murray arrived back in Scotland from France and took control of everything. Mary, who didn't know that Elizabeth was getting ready to go to war, signed all of the documents against her will as she was terrified that, you know, they would kill her if she didn't. Um, you know, one of the lords had actually threatened to slit her throat. That's the way to show your loyalty to your queen? Um, you know, after this happened, Prince James was crowned a few days later. So when Murray finally made it to Scotland, he first stopped at Loch Leven to yell at Mary about government and how it should be run and, you know, all that stuff, while the woman was in tears. Um, you know, he had absolutely no regard for his sister or her feelings or her role as queen or former queen, whatever you want to call her at this point. Basically, he wanted to uh, chastise her like a child. Uh, but, you know, did he stop there? Uh, no. So they went to bed, and then he picked back up again in the morning, except this time he was a little bit nicer, if only to convince her not to try and escape and run to England or France to get help. A little over a week after Murray arrived in Scotland, he was officially named Regent. Finally, he had that power that he'd been looking for. Once her health had fully recovered following her miscarriage, Mary really took the time to take stock of her situation and plan her escape. You know, now she had time to reflect and figure out what to do next. Uh, her first attempt failed miserably. She dressed up as a laundress and was halfway free when the boatman realized that she was the fucking former Queen of Scots. So he brought her back to Loch Leven and promised not to tell Douglas about it. Now, it was her second attempt that's super important, and it came from Willie and George Douglas. This occurred on May 2nd, 1568. And um, so Mary Seton dressed as Mary Stewart, to throw off the guard so that the queen could get away while Laird Douglas was eating with his family. Willie was able to steal the front gate key, lock it behind him, and then mess with all the other boats, um, you know, to make sure no one could follow them. Then he rode Mary across the water to meet up with George. So when Murray heard of Mary's escape, he and the other lords gathered their forces and marched out to meet her. 
Despite all the negative attention Mary had received by this point, 6,000 men followed her into what would be another battle, which did include men who left Marais' side to join their queen. Because, you know, she'd been imprisoned, she'd been forced to abdicate. There's this little boy who's now being called the king, um, and yet, who do you go with? The guy you know, or the guy who still can't say cookie? So, obviously, Mary. They would say whiskey, Adrian. Oh, I'm sorry, the boy who can't say whiskey or cookie. I don't know that he can speak at all at this point, but who knows. However, um, though her army outnumbered Marais, she lost and fled to Dumfries, and then continued on to England, where she crossed the border without waiting for permission from Elizabeth. You know, she had nowhere else to go. Oh, okay. So technically she did. She actually could have gone to France instead of England, where she was more likely to find aid. You know, former Queen of France, um, family in the country, what is the safer bet? France or England, where you've kind of been pitting heads against the Queen of England since you returned to Scotland? Um, since before her return to Scotland, really. Um... And if she couldn't find aid in France, then at least she'd be more welcome there. She still had properties there. She could have lived there. Yes, it would have been a queen in exile, but how is that any different than England? Um, and yes, her advisors did try to convince her to go to France. They were like, no, Mary, not England. Don't you know by now that you and Elizabeth really don't get along, even when you do get along? France is the better option. It's the safer option. Or at the very least, fucking ask Elizabeth first before you enter her country. She ignored all that. Right, honestly, she could have gone to France temporarily while she wrote to Elizabeth to get permission to come. But she didn't. And stepping foot on England without permission, even as another monarch, it's a big no-no. Yeah. So, I mean, her goal was speaking with Elizabeth face-to-face... Um, so she could get help and win back her throne. Uh, instead, she was locked away in Carlisle Castle uh, because Cecil, Elizabeth's advisor, was afraid the Catholics in England would flock to Mary and support her over Elizabeth. Most of all, though, Cecil wanted to make sure that the allegations involving adultery and her involvement in the plot to kill Darnley were fully investigated. If she was found innocent, she would be forced to sign the original Treaty of Edinburgh. So in either way, Mary loses. If she was found guilty, Moray might let her live the rest of the days in exile so long as he remained in power on behalf of Prince James. And if she was found super guilty, she'd likely be imprisoned in England for the rest of her life. So I'm not seeing the win in any of those situations. Mary clearly didn't think this through and just reacted. And after, you know, being imprisoned, she realized that Cecil was the key to her future. So very smartly, she wrote to him and tried to get on his good side. But did the guy even have one? No. Yeah, I don't think he did. And, you know, that was a smart play, but Cecil was very not Team Mary from the offset. So who knows if he even read anything that he, she wrote to him. He was Team Cecil. No, he was Team Elizabeth and Team England and just really hated Mary. Really hated her. Even though he had met her in the past and did admit that she was charming. and But I think that made him mad that she was charming and, like, made him hate her even more. We are going to segue for a hot second, talk about Bothwell. So last time we saw him, he was fleeing Scotland, and afterwards, Kirkaldy and a contingent of his men tracked him down and followed him as far as they could, 
but Bothwell was still able to get away. When he arrived in Norway, because that's where he went, he was arrested and moved to Copenhagen, while Frederick II, the king of Norway and Denmark, tried to use him as a way to get back the Orkney and Shetland Islands. From Scotland. Yeah, because Scotland had them right now. So Bothwell tried to get help from France, but France stayed neutral, and therefore Bothwell continued to live under the rule of Frederick II, though he did have quite the cushy setup, and he was even able to go hunting, because why not? Well, he wanted to make sure that, you know, he was um, treating Bothwell as well as he could, essentially just so he could get what he wanted. And But that didn't necessarily last, you know, forever. In June of 1573, Bothwell was imprisoned at Dragsholm Castle, and it was rumored that he died there, but it wasn't until April 14th, 1578, that Bothwell actually died. So this wasn't a very cushy castle. I think it was supposed to be very dark and dingy and... Yeah, not the most comfortable, and he... Oh my god, in his captivity, he drunk himself into his grave, kind of. Because he spent years just drinking and drinking and drinking, and he I think he had, like, several different organs failing at once, but he didn't die until a little bit after they originally announced, or rather, it was originally announced, that, you know, started circulating that he was dead. What was it? Rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated? Yeah. Sort of situation? <laughs> yeah. Five years, guys. There's a five-year difference. Yeah, between when they were like, he's dead, to when he actually was dead. But okay. So, back to Mary. It really came down to, in terms of her trial and f- all of that, it came down to, was Mary complicit in the plot to kill Darnley? Honestly, no one really knows, but... There's a whole hell of a lot of reasons to believe that she wasn't, considering it was her power-hungry half-brother Murray that provided the damning evidence. And to add insult to injury, the Lords added one last-minute charge that she had poisoned Darnley after James was baptized, which is why he got so sick. You know, when he had syphilis. According to the Lords... The casket letters were conveniently, which is what they're they're called. Yeah, because they were found in this casket um, back in, what was it, Hollywood House? Yeah. Yeah, so in, in this casket, there was a whole bunch of different um, paper items, um, and hence casket letters, because we're really creative with names. Yeah, so they were conveniently found right before Carberry Hill, which proved that Mary had, in fact, had an affair with Bothwell. While they were both married to their own spouses, her to Darnley and him to whoever the heck he was married to. Wasn't it Lady Jean Gordon, Huntley's sister? Yes, to her. Adrian has a much better memory than me sometimes. Always, it's fine. Um, And that they conspired to kill Darnley together. And apparently these letters were the reason that the lords decided to meet their queen with an army at Carberry Hill instead of rebelling because they didn't like her choice in husband. There were two letters. I mean, there were eight in total. But there were two letters in particular that were used to condemn Mary, and they were known as the Glasgow letters. The other six letters were pretty much love notes that spoke of killing Darnley, because what else do you put in a love note? 
And the fake abduction that led to Mary and Bothwell marrying because who needs regular pillow talk and check yes or no if you like to marry me notes. I prefer, you know, the more, oh, honey, I love you so much. Let's kill this bastard. It's so sweet. Love you. Why not? With the trial that was about to begin, it wasn't really going to be a fair one. Cecil was behind the men chosen for the commissioner positions, and they were all out for blood. Under them, Mary was going down for the murder of Darnley, whether she was actually guilty or not. Now, this trial began on October 4th, 1568. Mary appointed her own counsel to defend her, and that counsel went after Moray and the other lords, demanding proof of these so-called letters that he had as evidence and that he never produced. When it was time for Murray to finally speak, he opted not to go after the murder charge or produce the letters he claimed to have in his possession. Uh, first, he wanted to make sure that if Mary was found guilty, she wouldn't be able to return as a Queen of Scotland. The lords would make sure she was safe and looked after, of course. Otherwise, you know, it would be best for Mary to stay in England. Cecil worked on getting that promise for him from Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth did agree to these terms, only then, okay, only then, did Murray bring back the charge of murder. So very convenient, these charges. What was done next was dirtier than a fucking pig in a mud bath. Okay, the casket letters were brought forth after Mary's counsel was gone. She wasn't allowed to see them, um, you know, at least not until after her verdict had been decided. So this is a case of guilty and never proven innocent. At this, you know, Elizabeth had actually had enough. She didn't think the letters were real, and she agreed to the tribunal because she thought it would be about finding out how the letters were forged and by whom. It wasn't sitting well with her. So she stopped the trial and added some more men to the list of commissioners. You know, the trial was moved back to London, and she actually decided to sit and watch over the tribunal as it commenced. Mary, after hearing about what was going on, wanted to issue a statement but refused to do so to anyone other than Elizabeth because uh, only another queen was her equal. Elizabeth didn't think it would be right for her to preside over another sovereign, so she ordered Mary to address the charges or she would put the trial on hold until Mary changed her mind, you know, aka forever. Um... By the end of the year, Mary still hadn't been found guilty, but uh, that didn't mean she'd been found innocent either. She was really sitting in limbo. And Elizabeth made sure that the lords who presided over the tribunal never spoke a word about the casket letters. The public was never to know that they were a thing. It was like, you know, these documents don't exist. So for 19 years of her life, Mary was held in England. You know, she wasn't treated horribly, but, you know, actually rather well for a prisoner. Um, or are we to call her a guest? Was she a prisoner or a guest? What were they calling her at this point? She was an unwilling guest. Unwi- an unwilling guest. So for 19 years, Mary was an unwilling guest of England. Um, she was treated as befitted her station, and eventually she was able to expand her household from a dozen or so people to over a hundred, including George and Willie Douglas, the men who helped her escape from Loch Leven. Now, fun fact... George Douglas's nickname was Pretty Geordie since he was just so good-looking. Uh, Mary Senton was the only one of the four Maries to return to Mary's side. The others were married. Okay, we'll give them that. So, you know, especially at that time and for many centuries before and after. 
a woman's loyalty was owed to her husband. Um, you know, Mary Seton wasn't married. And if we're remembering correctly, at least one of the Maries did try to help from afar at one point. Um, but again, you know, as a woman at that time, you were subject to the whims of your husband more than anyone else. But, you know, Mary Seton, unfortunately, her health did begin to deteriorate after 15 years. So this is 15 of the 19 years that she spent in um, unwilling guesthood. Um, so 15 years after that fact, she did leave Mary unwillingly, we will say, because she did love Mary very deeply. She left Mary to go to a convent in France. Um, it was St. Denis. And she did outlive Mary. Anyway, so when she was forced into captivity, the first thing that was done was cutting her household down. Um, and Mary was a social butterfly, so this was one of the ways to control her. Um, ever the fighter, she tried to make sure that all her servants were looked after. If they were told to leave, she sent them to France, where the ambassador was instructed to give them pensions, or sometimes she was able to find them a new job in another household. Once again, you know, this is Mary's love for her servants and for those loyal to her. So she was sent to Tutbury Castle, which um, was the home of the Protestant Earl of Shrewsbury. Uh, George Talbot was his name in January of 1569. And this was deep in the middle of England. So this way it would be difficult for the Catholics to go and mount a rescue mission. It was also, you know, away from the Scottish border. It was away from the seas should anyone wish to sail in and grab her and go. So, you know, they were very much um, isolating her. Um, now, the castle was empty, to say the least. While Mary came to deeply respect Shrewsbury over the years, his idea of furnishing his home was non-existent. Uh, Mary did have her own stuff brought to her, but apparently it wasn't enough because she got sick rather quickly. So Shrewsbury went to Elizabeth and asked if Mary could be moved to a different castle, one where she would be more comfortable. Um, eventually, Elizabeth did agree, and Mary was moved to Sheffield Castle. Shrewsbury was in charge of Mary's care for 15 years. As would be expected of someone who continued to eat the way she was accustomed to without supplementing with exercise, Mary put on a lot of weight. Thankfully, though, she was allowed to have two doctors near her at all times, but oh my, did she suffer. Once a woman who loved to ride and breathe fresh air, now she was kept inside and started growing old way too soon. Her imprisonment took such a drastic toll on her body. In the 1570s to mid-80s, she was allowed to go to Buxton to spend some time outdoors, but that was only during the summers. Eventually, Shrewsbury built a lodge for her on his land for her to use. So, Buxton was a hot spring used as a spa since, you know, the Romans. In all of Mary's years, she wasn't allowed to write to her son, whom she loved and really just wanted to hear news about. No one gave her updates about him, so she was left on her own to wonder what he was like. The first time she got a letter from him was when James was 18 years old. So he'd been raised Protestant, by people who really hated Mary and no doubt filled his mind with awful ideas about his own mother. In his letters, he didn't address her informally or familiarly, but as Mary Queen of Scots and signed with his name rather than your son or something familial. Sometimes, though, Mary was incredibly 
naive. When she did write letters, for some reason it never seemed to cross her mind that her captors were reading her letters and keeping an incredibly close eye on her. She was too trusting in this regard, and it really would end up working against her. Because while Elizabeth was sympathetic to Mary for a time, it didn't last. Eventually, she tightened the noose around Mary's neck by limiting her activity further. She was no longer allowed to go outside for her walks or go horse riding. And Mary's body, once again, took a ginormous hit. Her feet swelled up. It was painful to walk, not just long walks, but short ones also. She became even more sedentary than she was before, with nothing to occupy her other than her animals, her embroidery, and as well as her relationship with Shrewsbury's wife, which became strained when she started to believe that Mary and Shrewsbury were having an affair. And this was because Shrewsbury just treated her so well. Like, he would even go and just have chats with Mary because he enjoyed her wit and intelligence, and he liked to, you know, debate and discuss things with her, uh, which, you know, was really a thorn in his wife's side. Yeah, because there really was just a deep mutual respect for one another, like, religion aside it was just two people who enjoyed each other's company there was nothing romantic about it yeah so as philip ii of spain was a threat protestant members of the privy council thought mary was an even bigger threat she was the closest proximity wise after all and it's all about location 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 so in august of 1584 um shrewsbury was relieved of his custodial duty and mary was transferred into the care of ralph sadler who was a huge supporter of cecil uh, mary once again returned to the dreary and uninviting tutbury castle in january 1585 the problem with sadler was that he was a pretty good guy actually so you know like shrewsbury he treated mary decently And he even felt bad for her. So, of course, he was replaced with Amos Paulette, who wouldn't hesitate to enter Mary's rooms and destroy her things, uh, basically like a child, Um, specifically her cloth of state. He would tear it down and which, you know, would really upset Mary, sometimes send her into fits of tears. His reasoning was that even though Mary was an anointed queen, she wasn't a queen of England and the people of England only had one of those, so he had the right to do as he pleased. Obviously, she was a prisoner, after all. A unwilling guest, right? I'm pretty sure that Paulette saw her as a prisoner, and therefore, in his mind, he didn't have to treat her as befitted her station as Queen of Scots. So he'd rifle through her letters, sending them away to be looked at in case there was some kind of secret message um, included in them, to or from the French, He was treating her like a criminal, hoping to find some kind of conspiracy. He actually removed her servants from her, questioned them, targeted them, and made their lives as difficult as possible. They weren't even allowed to mingle with the other household staff or leave the grounds without someone searching them and their things. How ridiculous is that? So, really quick interjection. It's actually Amias Paulette, and this is 100% on me. I told Adrian how to pronounce it wrong, because I'm an asshole. So, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's all Renee's fault. I mean, it really is. Thanks, Renee. You're welcome. Amias Paulette. Anyway, um, so, you know, it really shouldn't come as any surprise that Mary's health took a turn for the worst at this point. She was allowed a jaunt in her carriage at most twice a month. Often, though, she needed to be carried outside while still seated in a chair and placed in the garden because she couldn't walk. 
And if somehow she found the strength to walk, she needed help from at least two people to keep her upright. I can't even imagine the amount of pain this woman was in. And and to wake up every day with that and have to spend all day with that. And again, Mary was someone who loved the outdoors and she loved fresh air and sunlight. And to be denied that... Oh, man. Poor lady. Honestly, she could live in all the comforts of the world, but if she can't go outside, that's truly her prison because, again, she loved the outdoors, and they took what she loved most away Mm -hmm. from her. No pillows can make up for that. Yeah. Poor Mary. So, you know... Thankfully, I guess, the way she was being treated did reach the French, and they became even more vocal about how disgusted they were with her treatment. She was a queen, um, you know, something her jailers continue to forget for some reason. She may not be their queen, but she was still a queen, outranking all but Elizabeth. But, you know, there's only so much that you can do from your country writing angrily worded letters. In 1585, on Christmas Eve, Mary was once again moved, but... This time it was for the better. She was moved from the hell of Tutbury Castle to Chartley, a house that was surrounded by a moat. You know, so this way it would keep her in. But it was larger, it was more spacious, and it was much less suffocating than Tutbury. You know, considering how long Mary had been kept in castles in England, moved around like that final Brussels sprout on the plate that no one really wants to eat, I think she'd been a rather good sport about the entire thing. But there's only so much someone can take before they've had enough. In Mary's case, it took 15 years, guys, years, right? While she may have been thinking about planning an escape, she really didn't do much about it until the 1580s when her uncle, the Cardinal of Lorraine, passed away. Honestly, he kicked the bucket and he turned on Mary, so we really don't have to be really nice about it, okay? He was gone. Kaput. With Philip II wanting to conquer the world, Mary decided that she might just be able to ride on his coattails. Spain was a Catholic country. She was a Catholic queen. She was being persecuted due to her religion. At least, that's what she told herself that was happening. Completely ignoring all the other things that led her to that position. Yeah, while she was in captivity, Mary kind of reimagined herself as this, you know, staunch catholic queen suffering for her religion that was not really the case but yeah but whatever gave her comfort i guess before all of this back in 1569 there was an idea floating around that mary could marry the duke of norfolk a protestant whose family was friendly with the catholic faith in the eyes of matland and the other scottish nobles a marriage between them would remove mary from the political equation For Mary, it was the chance at freedom, so obviously she was more than happy to go along with this. She'd met the man only once, but was already writing him love letters. It was the custom back then. Now, Elizabeth didn't even know that this was a thought in people's minds, and the marriage wouldn't be able to happen without her approval anyway. Also, the Duke of Norfolk was Elizabeth's second cousin on her mother's side. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Elizabeth's mom, Anne Boleyn. Her uncle, Anne's uncle, was the Duke of Norfolk at that time, so hence the familial relationship. At first, even Murray was a, was okay with the match, um, but then he too had some time to think, and he figured marrying Norfolk would actually cause some problems for him. 
Mary would be able to challenge for her throne, and through Norfolk, one of the most powerful people in England, she would also be able to challenge for the English throne. Murray very quickly changed his mind, and to put an immediate stop to this, he sent a letter to Elizabeth that pretty much exploded like a nuclear bomb. So everyone, save for Mary, as she was locked up elsewhere, was summoned, and this led to the Northern Rising. It was over in six weeks, and Norfolk was sent to the Tower as a result, okay? Elizabeth was not having any of this. However, she didn't put any of the blame at Mary's feet. You know, it's always a nice thing not to be blamed for a revolt against an English queen, I guess. Things could have gotten a lot worse for Mary. But this wasn't the only plot running its course at the time. There was another plot that included the capture and execution of Elizabeth that would leave the route for Mary and Norfolk open. Then they'd be able to marry and ascend the throne, and this became known as the Rodolfi plot. Now, Roberto Rodolfi was a banker from Florence who appealed to the Spanish embassy with a plan called the Enterprise of England that would lead to the removal of Elizabeth and place Mary on the English throne, thereby reinstating Catholicism as the main religion in England. It's important to note that he was playing both sides by telling Walsingham, a close ally of Cecil and Elizabeth's own spymaster, about the plot. Rodolphe held the cipher that Mary and the Lords and everyone was using and gave it to Cecil in 1571, so all these letters that they were sending to one another, now Cecil had placed the key to it in English hands. Now Cecil put forth a document in Parliament that would keep Catholics from the line of succession in England, specifically speaking, Mary, should anything happen to Elizabeth. Cecil was able to discover how and where the conspirators would capture Elizabeth, and while Norfolk could be tied to the plan, there wasn't even a tiny thread linking Mary to this plan or her approval of it. Now, there wasn't any proof that Mary had been a supporter of the secondary plot, so while Cecil was calling for a head, um, he wasn't able to get what he wanted. So, you know, he was, however, able to easily make others think that she was guilty. So while Parliament was trying to get her executed, going so far as to propose a bill that would allow them to execute her without providing proof, tisk tisk, Elizabeth wasn't going to let it happen. She basically threw the bill out, you know, because she didn't agree with it. She couldn't bring herself to kill a queen. But she wouldn't stop the men from executing Norfolk, which happened on June 2nd. The Duke of Norfolk became one head shorter. Now, in July of 1584, William of Orange was assassinated. This, coupled with all the plots to kill Elizabeth, spurred Cecil and Walsingham to create the Bond of Association, which pretty much gave them the authority to kill anyone who attempted to kill Elizabeth, as well as anyone who allied themselves with the person who was plotting to take the life of Elizabeth. Even if that person didn't know about it, they would be executed. It was really aimed at getting rid of Mary, so, you know, either way, win-win. And more than execution, it was basically a carte blanche kill order. You found the assassin and or all her, or his, really her, friends. Take him out. In November of the same year, Parliament got together to discuss the bond of association as well as the line of succession. Think of two bulls locking horns, and that's pretty much all you need to know about Cecil and Elizabeth. Cecil wanted to make sure that when Elizabeth died, Parliament would be able to choose a Protestant to succeed her. Um, Elizabeth told him to drop the issue. No exceptions. Instead, in 1585, Parliament passed a different law. This was called the Act for the Queen's Safety, which was drafted with Mary in mind, once again, to keep her away from the throne. Are we seeing a common thread? And also to make her one head shorter. 
Two important aspects to the law. If a possible successor is somehow involved in plotting and rebelling and an, or invasion, you know, oh my, a council of jurors would be able to determine the guilt of said person and then kill them. The other aspect was tied to the bond of association. If Elizabeth was killed, there would be an investigation, which, of course, was only a formality, and uh, then Mary and her fellow conspirators would be executed. Cough, cough. We mean, you know, the person responsible for this would be executed. Cecil was nothing if not predictable. Um, Elizabeth did add in the stipulation that unless James was involved with or had prior knowledge of the plot, he was safe. He wouldn't be killed. Um, So then Elizabeth threw James a carrot, tempting him to her side and protecting herself in the process. Come to the dark side sort of thing, you know, we've got cookies. Um, She not only recognized him as King of Scotland, finally, because she'd been refusing to do it to this point, but also dangled the possibility of him succeeding her. So with this, there was no possibility of co-ruling with her son as Mary and James had been discussing for nearly a year by that point. You know, Mary had come up with this idea that... Okay, you know, she could come back to Scotland, and instead of becoming the only queen, it would be Queen Mary, you know, co-ruler with her son, King James. Now that was completely being thrown out. After James signed a treaty with England, uh, Mary was more desperate than she'd ever been. At this point, she was willing to consider any plot, no matter what it was, just so she could get free. Mary, as intelligent as she was, allowed desperation to take hold. A mistake was going to happen sooner or later, and that's exactly what Walsingham was counting on. He wanted to catch her in the act, so in January of 1586, he swapped out her old messenger with someone he believed she would trust, Gilbert Gifford, who defected from the Catholics, which Mary wasn't aware of. So whenever she wrote letters, Gifford would take those letters to Walsingham to be deciphered before sending them to their intended destination. At one point, Mary even supplied a new cipher key with one of her letters, which Walsingham only needed to copy. From there on out, he was able to read and understand every single letter Mary sent with absolutely zero effort. It was through this method that Walsingham was able to catch Mary in her involvement in the Babington plot. The plan was to muster Spanish Catholics in combination with English Catholics to kill Elizabeth, free Mary, and put her on the throne. Now, The Babington plot is an incredibly misleading name. Anthony Babington wasn't the mastermind. He was the one who recommended that Elizabeth be killed by six men, though it's noted that he wasn't really happy about his own suggestion. These men could plot till they were blue in the face, but unless Mary condoned it, they couldn't act. So on July 6th, a month after the conspirators met in London, Babington wrote to Mary, This really was the moment Walsingham was waiting for. If Mary answered this letter incorrectly, then he finally had her. So she took a week to answer. She was really deliberating. Like, what is she supposed to do? To condone or not to condone? It was tearing her apart because her entire life, or at least, you know, when she was living in Scotland, she kept calling Elizabeth her sister. This is her sister queen. And now here's this plot put before her and she has to make a decision. Kill her or don't kill her. In her mind, she really didn't have any other options. And after drafting this letter in her head first, she decided to answer yes, that she would in fact support this plot. Whereas before, Mary had always been coy with her language in her letters, here she was straight to the point. 
she clearly wrote that she consented to a plan to murder Elizabeth as well as an invasion. Walsingham bided his time. He wanted to make sure everything was set in place, and then on August 11th, Paulette, her current custodian, and some of his men accompanied Mary outside. She was going on horseback once more. At some point during the ride, Mary was met with a group of horsemen who were ordered to gather her servants for questioning and get her to Tixall, where she was currently staying as they had discovered the plot to kill Elizabeth. Yeah, when she saw those riders, she actually got really hopeful. She was like, it's happening. My saviors have come at last. I will be free. Nope. Nope. Nope, that's not what happened. So Mary, the grown woman that she was, dismounted from her horse and sat down on the ground, refusing to move. She would rather die right then and there than face the consequences of her own actions. Eventually, after some coaxing from her physician, she returned to Tixall where she was kept for two weeks while her rooms at Chartley were searched and her letters and other papers sent to London for investigation. On August 25th, Mary returned to Chartley, and on September 5th, Paulette kept her isolated as much as possible under Elizabeth's orders. Walsingham wasn't thrilled by this. In fact, he was pretty concerned. Mary's health wasn't the best, they knew this. So if she died after this kind of treatment, she would become a martyr, and that wouldn't work in their favor. So while Elizabeth knew that Mary would have to go on trial at some point, she would have rather had Mary die due to illness which is why she gave the order to separate Mary from everyone she loved. You know, she hoped Mary's health would suffer for it, and Elizabeth would therefore avoid the prospect of a trial and carrying out any verdict that came of it. Now, after much deliberation and a lot of back and forth with Elizabeth, it was eventually decided that Mary would be moved to Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire, which was used as a prison ever since Henry VIII died. Mary was 43 years old when the trial commenced on October 12, 1586. She found out about the trial from a letter written to her by Elizabeth. Um, Now, Mary refused to stand trial in front of the commissioners at first, you know, once again, just like in that previous trial. But eventually she changed her mind, claiming that she wanted to clear her name and would do so in any way that they asked. Honestly, it was a farce. Like in her previous trial, she wasn't allowed to do anything. She couldn't look at the documents used against her. She couldn't have a lawyer. She couldn't call people to speak on her behalf. None of it. Her hands were tied, and all she could really do was say, nope, I'm innocent, I didn't do this. At this point, Mary didn't know that the other conspirators were questioned before her. For instance, Babington had already been investigated and made a full confession. Her secretaries had also confessed everything. Um, The men continued to compile all the evidence, including the the letter written by her. When this was all thrown at her, Mary started crying. I guess, I don't know if she didn't have any other defense or... What? She was finally confronted by all these things and realized that she was in deep shit. But she started crying. Um, You know, she wanted to speak in front of Parliament or directly to Elizabeth, you know. Once again, a queen to another queen, her equal. The trial ended up being suspended for 10 days and then Walsingham got a letter from Elizabeth. Even if Mary was found guilty, she didn't want anything to be done. She would not carry out a sentence immediately. On October 25th, the verdict was decided in Westminster. Mary was guilty, and she wasn't there to hear it. And is this very surprising? Not even a little bit. Okay, we knew where this was headed. Guilty, 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 no matter what. 
Cecil wanted all and sundry to know that Mary was guilty so that they could settle the details for Mary's execution. Yes, he had what he wanted at last. Oh, no. Elizabeth, on the other hand, told him to hold the phones and stop being so excited. Okay? She wasn't ready yet for this final order. She wanted Mary to be killed in secret by someone who signed the bonds of association rather than have a public execution. In the end, the guilty verdict was announced on December 4th, and on February 1st, 1567, Elizabeth signed Mary's execution warrant. So this is where things get a little hairy. Apparently, Elizabeth signed this warrant with zero intention of it ever being used. She wanted Paulette to take the initiative and kill Mary himself since, you know, he was one of the signers of the bonds of association. Elizabeth didn't want anything to do with the death of Mary. She didn't want it touching her. She didn't want it on her hands, on her head. She didn't want, you know, her name being associated in the fact that the Queen Elizabeth of England had signed the warrant and ordered the death of another queen. So if Paulette, you know, were to do it himself, she could wipe her hands of the entire thing. And then Paulette would end up being the one carrying all the responsibility and guilt on his shoulders and whatever consequences that would bring because he would end up killing the Queen of Scots as a private citizen. Paulette, however, was not up to the task. Um, You know, he got this, and as loyal as he is to his queen, and as, you know, much as he wants to get rid of Mary, what? Kill her himself with his own bare hands? A woman kept in his charge? What is Elizabeth smoking? So, he instead hurried to make the preparations to get the execution over and done with as soon as possible. You know, sure, he signed the bonds of association. Sure, he hated Mary. But, you know, honestly, going as far as to murder her, at least we can give him that credit. He was not comfortable with that at all. You know, and especially the execution would be a sanctioned government event, essentially. Weird to call it an event, but it's sanctioned by the government. It's ordered by the government. It is done in regards to the government. Him killing her as a private citizen, not okay. Now, here's the kicker. Knowing what Elizabeth's intentions were, they opted not to tell her about them going through with the execution until it was over. But even with this, with Paulette and company acting behind her back, she could claim that it was a conspiracy and it was all done without her knowledge. How fortunate for Elizabeth. So, here's a question. Did Elizabeth play a game, or did she truly sanction another queen's execution? Tricky, tricky. The signing of the warrant shows her intent. But why sign it if you don't want it to happen? Come on, Elizabeth. Own it. Her claim was, you know, she gave this warrant and she was like, you know, go file it or hold on to it or sure, carry it somewhere. But no, no, no. No executions. I didn't order it. I just signed it. Okay. It was on Wednesday, February 8th, 1587, at 8 o'clock in the morning, that Mary was praying with her servants when Thomas Andrews, the sheriff of Northamptonshire, knocked on the door to inform Mary that the time had come. She'd been told the night before that she was to be executed. She accepted the news with such grace, thanking the men for telling her. There was finally an end in sight for her suffering. Nineteen years of imprisonment was about to come to an end. She was denied access to a Catholic chaplain, And she died not knowing where she'd be buried. She hoped to be buried with Francis or beside her mother in France. However, in the end, she didn't get her wish. 
She spent the night writing a will and writing a letter to her brother-in-law, King Henry III of France. Yeah, at this point, it's King Henry who is King of France, as Charles has passed away. So, really quick, fun fact. Richard III was born at Fotheringay Castle. You know, that king who was king before Henry VII took the crown? Yeah, the king that's associated with the two princes in the tower. Do you guys know that? The two princes that disappeared? Yeah, so he was born at Fotheringay. All right, back to Mary. What's super amazing is that she spent part of the night consoling her servants and telling them it would be all right. Here's this woman about to be executed, and she's more worried about her friends and her servants who are now mourning her already. So... Sleeping barely a wink, Mary had stayed up all night to prepare, making sure she was ready. And she was. At the age of 44, almost six feet tall, Mary Stewart was ready to finally put an end to her pain. She made her way down the hallway and through the castle. Her servants were waiting for her. She said her last goodbyes to them as they were lined up, okay? And her steward, Andrew Melville, wept at her feet. As has been the case for several years at this point, Mary had trouble walking and had to rely on the soldiers to, to stay upright. She walked ahead of the few servants allowed to come with her to the scaffold, which had been built over the past few days. Okay, since this execution was being put together last minute, they literally had like two days to build this scaffold. She climbed the steps and sat on a bench as her two executioners stood at her side. The axe was sitting there, right in the open. So Robert Beale read her crimes aloud, which included practicing Catholicism. Simply put, had it been an option, Mary would have put her fingers in her ears and said, la 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 la, I can't hear you, which is pretty much what she kind of did, since as he was speaking... She told him that she wasn't listening or participating in Protestant prayers. Okay, so there was a man named Fletcher who was leading everyone in prayer, and Mary instead prayed in Latin, loud and clear over him, and even when he was done, she kept going in English. She prayed for her son, she prayed for Elizabeth and her health and for her to have a long reign, and she also prayed for the church. After granting the executioner forgiveness, and which, by the way, I have an issue with. Hi, I'm going to kill you. I forgive you. I don't forgive you. At all. Right. Like, fuck off. The, after this whole bullshit forgiveness thing, the executioner then helped Mary's ladies undress her. And when he tried to take her things as payment, okay, she has to pay him to kill her. Um, she told him that he would be paid with actual money, um, as her items were to be given to her servants. Yeah, I don't get this whole ritual. I don't understand it, where he comes up and asks forgiveness. Okay, fine, it's not his fault, that's his job. But for the actual person getting killed to pay their executioner, it's not like she phoned London and was like, hey... Um, you know, I'm feeling unwell these past few days. If you could just send an executioner up here to Fotheringay, I would really appreciate it because I think I've reached the end and I'm ready to go. Wait, what would happen if she was like, you're not getting paid? Could you just take his axe and leave? (laughs) (laughs) Execution canceled. (laughs) I don't know that anyone's ever tried that, but now I need to know. 
I wish I could travel back in time and be like, hey, no, don't give him the money. Be like, no, you can't get paid by me. You've got to ask the other guy. Right. The one who actually wanted this to happen. Like, because I want to see what would an executioner do in that, like, instinct. I know. Also, how do you pick that job when you're growing up in that time period? Do you, like, I'm going to be a grocer or a market stall owner. I'm going to be an executioner. And little John will be a blacksmith. Right? Like, okay, there's all these normal jobs, and then it's like, I will be the king's executioner, because that sounds wholesome. Everyone has a dream. I suppose they do. So this is where Mary gave the middle finger to everyone. Um, Her petticoats were super red, you know, the color of blood, the color of martyrdom in the Catholic Church. It's fair to say everyone was shocked by her clothing choice. Once she was ready, she said one last goodbye to her ladies and her manservants before kneeling down and putting her neck on the block. The blindfold was put on her by Jane Kennedy, one of her ladies, right before she knelt down on the cushion. Mary then said a psalm out loud in Latin. In te domino confido, non confundat in eternum. In you, Lord, is my trust. Let me never be confounded. She then blindly felt around for the block before putting her head upon it. She stretched out her arms on either side of her, and with her head on the block, she repeated over and over, In manus tuas, Domine, commendo spiritum meum. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. The assistant executioner, because, you know, if you're an executioner, you should have an assistant, held her down while the other one swung the axe. But, oh my fucking God, he fucked up. So the first swing landed in her head where the blindfold was tied. There are differing accounts on whether or not Mary made a sound. One account says she made what sounded like a whimper, while another account says she screamed out in pain, um, because wouldn't you? Another says that she quietly, you know, muttered, sweet Jesus. John Guy states uh, that in his book that she yelled, sweet Jesus, receive my soul. So then there's a second swing of the axe. It did a better job, but not totally, okay? It didn't completely sever the head. So the executioner had to hack away at her neck to finish the job. And here we thought someone of royal blood would require an executioner with actual skill. At least Henry VIII allowed an expert swordsman to come from Calais in France to take off Anne Boleyn's head. What I think is even more heartbreaking is that when the executioner raised Mary's head to show the crowd and yelled out, God save the queen, it not only appeared as though her lips were still moving since she was still praying when the axe came down, but her head actually fell back down on the scaffold as she had been wearing a wig. So, you know, by this point, she was nearly bald and her hair was gray. A once vivacious young woman had aged so quickly well before her time. When Mary's body was being unclothed, they actually found her dog in her skirts. He'd hidden the fabric and was able to sneak onto the scaffold as a result. So they had to force the dog away because he refused to leave Mary's side. And we're not entirely sure if this is true or not since... It can't be verified, but it said that after the dog was washed clean of her blood, he died after refusing to eat. Essentially, he was heartbroken. Though, we really wouldn't be surprised if, surprised if this was true, as dogs have done this in the past with humans and, you know, litter mates. Everything Mary owned that was covered in blood, such as her clothing, a rosary, and even the block used to execute her, were ordered to be burned in case some Catholics wanted a relic of the executed Catholic queen. 
big no-no. It would cause too much trouble, and then he didn't want to make her a martyr. So Thomas Andrew, the sheriff, had to bury Mary's heart and inner organs in the castle foundation, and then he, like everyone else, went home. His job was done. So Mary wasn't buried until six months after she was executed, with her body kept and put to rest in a lead coffin. While she was granted a state funeral, there was a limit to how many people could be there. She was buried in Peterborough Cathedral and placed close to the tomb of Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII. Now, the court of France did mourn her death. A requiem mass took place on March 13th at Notre Dame Cathedral with Henry III, Catherine de' Medici, and her blood relations present, along with the rest of the royal court. People in Scotland did mourn her passing as well. You know, some of those who were loyal to her put up signs with a lovely little rhyme um, with a little noose attached. Three guesses who this rhyme is for. To Jezebel, that English whore received this Scottish chain, a presage of her great malheur for murdering our queen. Subtle, isn't it? No, I don't know who that's about. Tell me. Oh, I think it's just about ra- some random person. Oh. Uh, yeah. Could they maybe be talking about Cecil when they said whore? Do you think they meant man whore? <laughs> I don't know that Cecil was a man whore, <laughs> Renee. I don't think that's the furthest thing from what he was, actually. Um... So Elizabeth I died unmarried and without issue on March 24th, 1603, at the age of 70. That is a huge difference from Mary's age. When James became king, one of the first things he did was to commission two huge tombs. One was for Mary and one for Elizabeth, with effigies made for them. In October 1612, James had Mary exhumed and relocated to Westminster. Uh, He did also move Elizabeth and place her with her sister, Mary Tudor. Um, The nice tomb he built for Elizabeth pretty much makes it seem like she's the only one buried there. There was only a little statement in Latin that alerted visitors to Mary Tudor's resting place, being, you know, with that of Elizabeth. Now, the one James built for Mary Stuart, on the other hand, was the larger and more elaborate tomb. Which makes sense. She was his mother after all, the Queen of Scots cousin to Elizabeth, and the reason he was king. Also, it looked really nice that the king, who united the isle, remembered his mother and treated her with the respect owed her as an anointed queen. I love that he conveniently shows this respect. It's always convenient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Political as always. Mm-hmm. Of note, they did reopen Mary's tomb during the Victorian era, they were looking for James since no one knew where he was buried. He was hanging out with Henry VII and his wife, Elizabeth of York. But in Mary's tomb, there was something interesting. So many, like, there were so many different lead coffins, some of them belonging to children, that were in there with her. This included Henry, Prince of Wales, her grandson, her granddaughter, Elizabeth of Bohemia, known as the Winter Queen, and others who could trace their lineage back to Mary. And the most heartbreaking of all, the children who never, never became toddlers. This included ten of of James II's kids, as well as Queen Anne, her stillborn children, and the Duke of Gloucester. The only child Anne had that lived. He was 11 years old when he died. Two of James's daughters also died as children, and while they're buried in Henry VII's chapel, they are not with Mary. So while James was living it up, many of the people who stood against his mother met a rather disastrous end. Luckily? Unluckily? Mm, I don't know. Moray was killed in 1570. Um, He ended up being regent of Scotland for 18 months. Congratulations, Moray. 
Maitland died three years later, possibly from suicide. Morton was stabbed by one of Mary's supporters in 1571 and bled to death. He was the regent after Murray. John Knox, remember that super Protestant guy uh, that we met in part one? The one that hated women? Yeah, and specifically Catholic ones. He had a stroke and died two years later in 1572. Walsingham never received any kind of rewards or recognition for his work. Cecil, on the other hand, little weasel that he was, was made Lord Burley in 1571. So he's the only one of those that actually had a good end. Now, in the end, Mary and Elizabeth never met. And, uh, you know, that leaves us with some questions. What would have happened if they had? How much of the story would be different? You know, Mary was known to be a charming and charismatic person. Would Elizabeth, like many before her, have been captivated by the Scottish Queen? You know, we'll never know. We can always speculate. What do you think, Renee? I think that maybe that was actually one of the reasons they never met. That maybe Elizabeth or maybe her advisors were actually kind of like, no, this person is supposed to be, like, incredibly, like, seductive. And I don't, obviously, I don't mean sexually. I just mean, like, as a person that she can charm anyone. Let's not. And, like, all the events that kind of were like, oh, wait, we can't meet because your family just did this whole freaking massacre over there in France. Oh, no. Or whatever else was an excuse for them to never meet. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense because, you know, had they met, I think more than it being her, um, you know, charisma, I think had they just met face to face, these two women who were, you know, cousins and obviously for Mary, that would have been the highlight of her life, you know, her cousin and someone, uh, you know, who holds familial ties to be all important. Um, that would have been a definite turning point in her life. But I think for Elizabeth as well, because face to face, you can't, I mean, you definitely can still pretend and, you know, plot and blah, blah, blah. But I think more than that, I think it would have been impossible for Elizabeth not to form a connection and relate to Mary just because, you know, they're two queens ruling on their own, in their own right, and blood ties. And I think they just would have had so much to talk about once that initial ice had been broken. 100%, especially because when you're writing letters, you can keep a distance. Like, it's Mm -hmm. so easy to keep someone at arm's length. But when you're actually face-to-face with someone, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's different when you're finally meeting someone who, again, is in such a similar situation, and, like, they're already similar in age, like, there's just so much between them that they could connect to each other with. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that would have probably been one of the most productive meetings in their lives, and I think it totally would have shifted the way things were occurring both in England and Scotland, especially in relations to in relation to one another, I think that would have shifted the political landscape entirely, which is probably why, you know, Elizabeth's advisors were totally 100% against this happening. Absolutely. Especially because it's like, if you consider the fact that Mary, like, just like in terms of religion, like, while she was a Catholic, she didn't want to upset the religious balance that was happening in Scotland. And then there was Elizabeth, who, while Protestant, she didn't rule by religion. Mm-hmm. Like, she was very pragmatic when it came to ruling. Like, she didn't allow 
the church to influence her policies in Mm -hmm. that regard. It was kind of that is separate and government is its own thing. And it's like it would have really, really done something to the political landscape Mm -hmm. because there's there are these two people that are like, okay, religion is one thing, but that's not what ruling is about. Oh, yeah. They definitely have that in common, which is interesting considering Mary's Catholic upbringing in in France. But Um, You know, she had to change the way she looked at things in Scotland. And what's more interesting, I think, is that she was able to do that without losing a part of herself. And sure, you know, she felt bad in some ways that she wasn't keeping the Catholic faith as it should. But she was like Elizabeth, looking at it from a very, you know, realistic standpoint where, okay, I'm Catholic and I'm a queen. But, you know, most of my subjects at this point aren't Catholic. And I have to rule my people, not my religion. Yeah. Because I remember, like, reading that, like, the Pope was getting pissed off with Mary because, mm-hmm. like, she wasn't, you know, spreading Catholicism far and wide and reestablishing it as, like, the main religion in Scotland. And right. it's like, yeah, like, I understand where the Pope's coming from because he's Catholic, but... And the head of the church. She, right? But she's over here like, you're head of the church. That's great. But I'm head of a country. Mm-hmm. Like, and there is such a tenuous, like balance and peace Mm -hmm. that she had to maneuver around and like with you know while Darnley was screwing things up she was actually doing a really good job of it for a while yeah especially since religion is always you know a really huge political powder keg especially at that time when you know religious ideals were shifting in so many different countries between Catholicism and the you know different Protestant sects that were coming out and about so You know, in that respect, Mary did a great job, but unfortunately in others, she definitely could have done better and worked better, but, you know, I think at the end she admitted that, you know, she had all these advisors telling her to do these things and that she basically told them to go away, that she wasn't going to listen, and she regretted that. And had she listened to those advisors, things would have ended differently for her. Yeah, because I mean, like, she made a smart decision when she was first coming to Scotland you know, and everyone was saying, you know, get rid of Murray. And she was like, yeah, no. Like, so she made a smart decision in keeping him there. But it's just, again, we mentioned this earlier. She started putting her faith in one person rather than in the group. Mm-hmm. And that's what really... Spelled the beginning of the end for her. Yeah. And I mean, we could also speculate, like, had she not married... Darnley or Bothwell or... You know, because I mean, even after Darnley, like if she hadn't married Bothwell, I think things would have cooled down mm. eventually because, you know, if she just behaved accordingly because the whole wedding going to a wedding right after his death looks bad and we know she didn't mean anything by it. But had she behaved accordingly, gone into mourning for those 40 days and then just focused on ruling her country Mm-hmm. rather than finding a man you know she could have focused on her people on the politics on whatever was important at the time including any negotiations needed with elizabeth since she was so close so freaking close and i think things might have turned around for her again we don't know because what other roadblocks might she have come across but yeah it's just there's a whole lot of what ifs in her life. I mean, there's a whole lot of what ifs with everything in history. What if this was different? What if that was different? But really, you know, we'll never know. Um, but yeah, so this is uh, the end of 
Mary's very tragic life, born with a silver spoon, died with her head on the block. Um, there is a rhyme. Um, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard of it. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? So this rhyme is attributed to Mary, Queen of Scots, but there is another Mary, another Queen Mary, Mary Tudor, and sometimes it's attributed to her as well. So who is it for? Which Mary? We don't know. Um, when I was at the Tower of London, and uh, you know, the Yemen of the Guard give the tour, and that guy said that it was for Mary Tudor. John Guy says it was for Mary Stuart. So two Catholic Marys who were queens at the same time. Who knows who it's for? Um, like, there's actually something else that, like, I came across years and years and years ago just from a conversation I was having with a friend back in college. And um, because there was Mary Tudor and then there was Mary Stuart, there are some people who think that Mary Stuart was known as Bloody Mary which wasn't her, because it was Mary Tudor, wasn't it? Yeah, Mary Tudor is Bloody Mary um, because of the number of Protestants she had executed during her reign. But, and so it's like I never understood where that came from because I'm like, she, it's not like she led, like, had a billion wars and executed eight million people. She exiled people. Sometimes they exiled themselves, case in point, Murray. Right? Like... So it's like, I, I'm not really sure where that came from. So if there's anyone out there that for some reason thinks that Mary Stewart is Bloody Mary, go back to Mary Tudor. That is Bloody Mary. All right. So in terms of books that we recommend, um, I do recommend John Guy, um, Mary Queen of Scots. That's what the movie that came out in 2018 is based off of. We actually haven't seen it yet. Um, we are going to watch it. Um, we're a little nervous. But we're going to watch it and we're probably going to live tweet while we watch it. Uh, so you'll get our reactions to some of the strange and ridiculous things that they include in this film. Um, definitely, So definitely read John Guy. It's it's a long one. It's like 700 and something pages, but it's very readable. He He does reference documents that he's looked at. A lot, but again, it is it is an easy read. The book that I would actually recommend is um, by Alison Weir. So what Alison Weir does is she talks about Mary, but also her possible involvement in the plot to kill Darnley. So it's like the first half of the book covers, you know, Mary growing up and coming into her own in Scotland and the marriage to Darnley. And then the second half of the book covers you know, did she or didn't she? So it's it's really a really fascinating read. So if you wanted to kind of read a little bit more about that, just because it is such a tricky situation and we still don't have a consensus, um, read that book also. Yeah, and in terms of um, TV and film, we actually haven't watched all that much. Uh, we do, I watched Rain. Renee is currently watching Rain. Um, and we recommend it because it's just a good, fun watch. Um, you know, there's a lot of unrealistic things that never happened and people that never existed. And Which, which is the reason I, like, put off watching it for so long. Because I was like, this is so historically inaccurate. No. Yeah, no, it definitely bugged when I first watched it. Um, but it's just, it's a nice, fun time uh, to pass. You don't have to think at all really while watching this. And they do pull on some of the tidbits, but it's more like, you know inspired by certain things that happened and by this person who was named Mary Queen of Scots, but everything else has been falsified. Um, and especially, oh, the thing I do hate that makes me want to vomit all over the place is that 
the women, aside from Catherine de Medici, are wearing prom dresses, essentially, and that makes me, like, want to jump out of my skin. Um, They also use a lot of current music, which I really, really hate. Um, but luckily after season one, they get a lot better with it. Um, and which I don't know why they do that because the person who scored, um, the series is the same composer who scored the Tudors and the Borgias. So his score is, uh, as always, brilliant. Um, but yeah, so they do get better with that, um, post season two. Just don't think you're watching anything even remotely related to a documentary because you're very much not. I mean, they're in France, so that's accurate. There you go. In France, and then she ends up in Scotland. So that's historically accurate. Go rain. Oh, and she married a guy named Francis. That's also accurate. Yeah. Okay. So, again, inspired by things, and then they made things up. Um, Now, even though we haven't watched the Mary Queen of Scots movie from 2018, if you're a soundtrack person like I am, I love the scores, the compositions. I collect them. The score for Mary Queen of Scots, funny that I listened to that before watching the movie, but I did listen to it and it is awesome. It is absolutely excellent. So definitely recommend the score. Now comes the big reveal for our next topic. Renee, do you want to do the honors? I mean, I guess I can. Okay. So our next topic is... Drum roll, please. I can't do a drum roll. Try. No. So our next topic is the Romanovs. Yeah, so we're doing the Romanovs in July in honor of the 101st anniversary of their execution. So, you know, it looks like we've got a theme here with tragic, depressing, and people being deposed from their thrones sort of thing. Um, So that's our next topic. Make sure you tune in in July. And thank you so much, guys, for tuning into this episode of Dear World Love History. We love you, our listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Historians out. Do you love true crime, history, and mysterious happenings? Every week on The Cult of Domesticity, a guest and I discuss a different historical happening, a true crime story, or whatever strikes our fancy. Join me, Courtney, every Thursday to hear some fascinating tales from some fascinating people wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Michael, the host of the semi-monthly podcast in a city like yours. Join me as I chat with interesting people with interesting life stories. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can follow us on Twitter at IACLYS Podcast, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at In a City Like Yours Podcast. Please feel free to let me know what you think. And keep coming back for the many interesting stories in a city like yours.